In our final week, I want to look at a few practical issues related to parenting in today's world. Ted Tripp, in the foreword to his book, The Faithful Parent, says this. He says, in the simplest of times, raising children is an overwhelming task. These are not the simplest of times. Many voices are giving competing and often contradictory messages. The need of the hour is a timeless clarity and wisdom of the word of God. Listen to that. The need of the hour for us as parents is timeless clarity and wisdom of the word of the God of God. The Bible is robust, providing solid counsel, tailor-made for every era and culture. The greatest need of parents is biblical knowledge coupled with the wisdom and understanding needed to break down the application of scripture into sensible and doable training in the nurture of children. And that's what we need to do. We all desire you're here to uh, desire to be faithful parents in our world today. And so we're going to consider several pertinent issues in today's world, both because we need to think carefully about these things, but then as we think carefully about these, these really apply to every area of our life and uh, the lives of our kids as we seek to model what Christ- how Christians should think about these certain things. And one of the issues uh, which is very um, contradictory, um, the culture has a very contradictory voice in, is that of gender. So we need to think carefully about God's design and the implications for the training and nurture of our children as it relates to gender. So how do we do that? Well, let's look at several steps, several things that we can do as we look to raise boys and girls into men and women. Three steps we must take. First, we want to develop a vision for biblical masculinity and femininity. Okay, that's our, that's our goal. We want to develop a vision for biblical masculinity and femininity. Okay, the Bible is a robust, solid counselor in every area, every era, and every culture. Okay, so as we develop that, the root issue is God as creator. Okay, and so we recognize that he has the authority. Genesis 1.27, we are made in his image, and he intentionally made us male and female. That's an intention of his. So we need to recognize his authority. So the authority of God as the creator and owner, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He owns everything. And he, as the creator, has the right to tell us what to do. So it's the authority of God versus the autonomy of the creature. Which is it? Do you or your kids get to decide or does God decide? Who defines male and female? Who defines what a marriage is? Well, God, as the creator and owner, decides, of those, decides those things, which is good because God is good, okay? As we develop the root issue here, his authority and his goodness. The Bible says that all that God does is good. Proverbs, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 119, 68, God is good and he does good, and in his goodness, he made them male and female, his goodness, his authority, and also his wisdom. God makes no mistakes. God makes no mistakes. And so he makes us, in his own image, male and female. So the root issue is that God is good, he is wise, he's the creator, and he has all authority. Okay, so it's important for us to realize that. That God made male and female, Genesis 1. God made men and women different. God gave men and women different roles, vitally important roles, but 
distinct roles, and God views men and women as spiritual equals. Women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We are all one in Christ, according to Galatians 3.28, but that doesn't mean that we don't have different roles. So as we develop this vision of biblical masculinity and femininity, let's look secondly at the character and roles, the character qualities of biblical masculinity and femininity. Because the truth is that there are unique differences, unique roles and priorities um, that we have. There are several verses printed there in your handout, Genesis 2, 18 to 25, talks about how women was created from man. Proverbs 31, 10 and following highlights the ideal woman, right? And so if you, uh, women, if you want your girls to understand what a biblical woman looks like, biblical femininity, you need to take them to Proverbs 31 and walk them through that. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14 is a charge to men, specifically to be strong, act like men, have the courage of your convictions, have a backbone, stand up for what you believe in, protect your families. 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15 highlights the roles of men and women in the church, right? They're equally important, but different roles. There are certain things set aside for men that women are, are not uh, to have, such as leadership roles and teaching uh, men, Titus 2, in fact, why don't you turn to Titus 2, and this, where Paul kind of gives a pretty good kind of outline distinction of the roles of men and women in the church. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, and all of these are excellent, all these scriptures, excellent scriptures on the roles and priorities and distinctions given to men and women. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, but as for you, Titus, this is written to Titus, Titus was sent to Crete to to um, appoint elders, leaders in the church. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, or sound meaning healthy. It's very important to the health of the church. It's very important to the health of your homes that you embrace God's word and what it says about the character and roles related to gender. He says in verse two, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to to much wine, teaching what is good. Their women have the gift of teaching, and they do that so that they can encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Of key there, um, amongst other things, subject to their own husbands. It's not that women are subject to all men, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Guys, when we embrace our, our roles uh, of biblical masculinity and femininity in the world, it, it is a light to the world and it me- means that they cannot put us to shame, Paul says. We could read in First Peter 3, verses one to seven about the specific roles of men and women in marriage. Okay, so if we, if we looked at this, we see the picture painted scripturally using those passages of scripture of biblical masculinity. The picture painted is one of self-sacrifice, caring for others. Biblical masculinity has the role of leadership, Headship, you could think of it as a shepherd of your family. Courage, strength of conviction, a provider and a protector. That's biblical masculinity. 
The other side is femininity. And the idea painted in scripture is that of a nurturing, submissive, somebody with a quiet and gentle spirit, meaning that they are trusting and hoping in God. Uh, Biblical femininity is you're trusting and hoping in God with an emphasis on inner beauty with the role of a helper. And so those are the the biblical characteristics and roles of a man and a woman, of, of biblical masculinity and femininity. Sadly, though, they differ greatly from what society and what the culture says that the priorities should be. And so as we do this, we need to recognize the attacks on biblical masculinity and femininity. We need to recognize that because this is an area that for decades the culture has attacked um, masculinity and femininity, try to redefine it as something different. And so they have, re, they have a redefinition of gender in particular. This is something that's relatively new, gender identity or what you feel your gender to be. Again, do you have the authority to change that or is this appointed by God? Gender identity, what you feel about your gender rather than the biological definition of gender. <clears throat> so, is it possible to be a man trapped in a woman's body? Yes. When you were in your mother's womb. And that was it. <laughs> that can never happen again. But the secular view, <laughs> the secular view, you were a little scared, weren't you? A little scared. Um, the secular view is that psychological identity, what you think and feel, trumps the biological reality of your body. The brain says one thing, your body says the other. The secular view is that the brain is right and you change the body, either through mutilation or hormone reassignment. And ultimately, we are hateful to say otherwise. That's a secular. The biblical reality is that gender is God-given connected to the biological structure of one's body. And so if the brain says one thing and the body says the other, the body is right because scripture says that the brain is sinful and that we need to renew our mind and set our minds on things above and not on things on earth. So we, we bring our brain and our mind under the reality that is described in scripture because the Bible is the plumb line of what is right and wrong. If your brain or your mind or your thoughts or your feelings say one thing, This doesn't just apply to gender, this applies to everything. If your brain and your feelings say one thing and the Bible says another, you are wrong. The Bible is true. And it is the plumb line of what is right and wrong. God is the author and the creator and he makes no mistakes because he is wise. So, but there is an attempt to redefine gender. There's also an attempt to blur the lines. Uh, The feminist movement, has made great inroads in this. Now the transgender movement is taking it a step further to, to try to blur the lines of gender. And this has come into the church as well with egalitarianism in the church. But the truth is that God restricts women from serving in certain leadership roles and instead calls women to serve in equally, understand this, equally important, equally valuable, but complementary roles. So there are certain things that are reserved for men in leadership of the church. But again, there's a a concerted effort to blur those lines both in the culture and in the church. Thirdly, we see a twisting of gender roles. And this is a product of Genesis 3 and the curse, a twisting of those gender roles either way. With masculinity, it might be a passivity or a weakness, or it might be a dominance or an over-aggression, almost predatory 
you know, beyond what Scripture says that all women are to be subject to all men. Femininity, twisting of that is, is Genesis 3, to usurp the masculine role and be the leader and the dominant, to rule over your husband. Or extreme passivity, submitting to all men. But those are the types of things that we need to be careful of. So we need to intentionally, in our homes, as parents, we need to intentionally cultivate biblical masculinity and femininity. Because there is such a push to attack this, because there is such a push to blur the lines, we need to hold the line. We need to proactively teach biblical masculinity and femininity in our homes. And so we need to model that. Because we need to be modeling that in our homes. Right? As a husband, husbands, you should take a leadership role. Wives, you should take a, a role of Christ-like submission. Recognizing that submission is not a reflection of inferiority in any stretch or of lesser worth. That's very easily proven with the fact that Christ constantly submitted himself to the will of his Father without giving up an ounce of worth. Submission teaches you and teaches your kids to fully trust God by faithfully submitting to your husband. And so we cultivate this in your marriage. You also point it out when you see it. If you see this modeled well, point it out to your kids. If you see it modeled poorly, maybe in a movie or TV shows, make sure you stop that and point that out. You know, you see kids, that's a very bad example of masculinity or male leadership in the home. And, and you know, the, the lazy or passive dad that is just rampant on TV shows and movies. That's a bad leader. You need to point that out So you're because that's the culture. They're trying to get you to understand this is how it's supposed to be. Stop the movie. And point that out, right? Encourage these things. Delight in it. Delight in it as you model these in your home. Talk about how what a blessing it is, women, that you have the opportunity, if the Lord wills, to stay at home and, and do these things and raise your kids. This is a blessing from the Lord. This is what God would have for us right now. Um, encourage it with small things. Even, you know, the, what you buy your kids to play with, what you encourage, what toys you encourage your kids to play with. Buy things like dolls and doll houses and kitchen and food, those types of things for your girls and encourage them to play with that. Boys should be playing with army men and fire trucks and guns. And this is not a rigid set of rules. You know, it's not that girls can never toss the football. It's not that, that the boy is always a doctor and the girl is always a nurse or anything like that. And again, this is not your idea of what a man is. You know, you're not raising your, your boy to be your version of the mountain man or John Wayne or something like that. No, this is the biblical idea of manhood, what the scriptural priorities of men and women are. We want to encourage those. And so we need to cultivate them in our homes. Highlight the joys of caring for children. You know, that it's a privilege to help your mom in the kitchen. Let, the, let your little girl begin to help you bake the cookies and then eventually she starts to bake them yourself and you're looking over your shoulders. You know, highlight the joy of labor. Men, don't complain about going to work. This is a joy that God has given me to be able to provide for, for my family as the Bible says that I should. I'm fulfilling my God-given role. In the circumstances of life, we can do this. You know, just for example, don't baby your boys, okay? It's not a big deal if they skin their knee while riding their bikes. You know, don't make, it a, make a big deal of that. Shake it off, son. Jump back on the bike. Let's get back on this and do it. You can do it. 
don't coddle them. You know, a broken bone is not the worst thing that could happen. You know, it's an opportunity for you to commend their courage, whatever it is that they did that broke their bone, commend their courage and help them think wisely next time. My oldest son and my oldest daughter have both, both broken their arms and those emergency room visits were very different. I was joking with my son about it in the emergency room and we were coddling my daughter because there's just a different way that you're responding to these things as you're cultivating that stuff. So if you have a son and you're gonna change the oil, take him with you. Help him learn how to do things like jump a car. When you go camping, let him help you put the tent up, start the fire, put, put the pocket knife in his, um, po- in his pocket. Carry the hatchet. Maybe let him use the hatchet, you know, under supervision, okay? <laughs> put your son in charge of maybe a small project at your house in a leadership role and just follow up and say, hey, how did that go? How, how did everything work out? Take your daughter's with you shopping, training them how to purchase things on a budget. You know, maybe think about um, dividing out the chores in, in a special way. Boys take out the trash, boys mow the lawn, girls make the lunch, fold the laundry. Again, you're training this in your home. Does it mean the boys don't know how to do laundry or know how to fold laundry? Not at all. It's just these are the things that you're trying to, to help create a culture in your home. You know, I want, for example, my boys to learn to do hard things. I want them to take risks. I want them to learn that it's okay to fail at certain things and learn to get back up and do it again because one day they're gonna have to do that in their homes. I want my girls to want to do hard things with me because they can learn to trust me as their authority, that everything's gonna be okay. I'm gonna be with you. We're gonna do this. And then one day that's gonna be transferred to their husband who will be able to say that same thing for them. For example, again, camping. You know, when it gets dark, I don't mind that my daughters want me to walk with them to fetch something or get, go to the car or go to the bathroom. I will walk with them to do that. And I will go and I'll protect her. I'll put my arm around her. Or I'll send their older brother with them. My sons, I prefer them to go by themselves and tell them, son, if there's a grizzly bear, I can't help you anyways. You know, you can figure this out on your own. One day you're going to have to protect your little sister or your child, right? I'm putting the worm on the hook for my daughter and I'm letting my son do that for themselves as they are learning to develop those things. All of those are small little ways that you can encourage masculinity and femininity in the life of your home. And find it where it exists and highlight it. Praise it in your, in your homes. Be quick, guys and gals. Be quick to encourage Feminine beauty, the quiet and gentle spirit, praise inward beauty. You know, be careful about external beauty. The Bible encourages inward beauty. Um, It downplays external beauty. It's not that it's bad. It's not that it doesn't exist. I want my girls to know that I think that they are beautiful, but that's not the focus of Scripture. And so we encourage biblical masculinity and femininity in our homes. You know, in areas where it's over the top, you know, if you have a daughter that is just obsessive over the way she looks, you know, you're gonna have to rein that in. It's not that this is a bad thing, but there is such a thing as we're taking this too far, right? This is a, beauty is inward, not external. You know, if you have a son that is over the top, we wanna redirect that and not squash it. You know, son, that took great bravery and courage to take that jump off of your bike. That was great. Next time, let me help you. I'll show you how to, how to um, kind of examine that ramp and check it so it doesn't collapse. So you're encouraging their bravery 
and their courage while also having an opportunity to give them some wisdom. If your boy hits somebody, it's not never hit somebody. That's not the answer. Righteous anger and protection are a possibility that they're going to have to deal with. So it's not don't ever hit somebody. It's you always keep your self-control. They may need to protect their mother or their sister or their wife one day. So we're training them to do this. One last thing related to modesty. Very, very important. Um, women that you model modesty in your home. Help your daughters understand what real beauty is. Modesty deals with where a woman finds her value as an image bearer of God, okay? Immodesty is sensuality, right? That's sinful. We do not want to cross over into sensuality and immodesty. Modesty also deals with thinking of others as more important than yourself. Why are you wearing that? Are you wearing that to get attention? Are you causing some, you could potentially cause somebody else to stumble by wearing this, this thing, so help them think through why they're doing that. Ask good questions. And then related to sons, dads, never let your sons, as they start to develop and they are teens, never let your sons dishonor their mother with words, okay? Help them understand that biblical masculinity is, is restraint. It is servant leadership. It is loving others. It's more important than yourself. It's honoring people with your tongue. Because the way that your son talks to his mother is likely how they will one day speak to their wife. So we want to, to have an authority over our kids and help them interact in a way that honors them. So those are just some thoughts on how that we can intentionally cultivate biblical masculinity and femininity in our home because it's very, very important that we do that. Next, let's change gears to media and technology. You know, today we live in a world where technology is rapidly changing. You know, the options, the availability of how we intake media is changing all the time. I don't know. What are some ways that technology has changed? This is a little bit interactive here. In your life, what can you think back on maybe when you were growing up, how, how things have changed? That's right. Maybe you could play the snake game, right? And that was it. Yeah, what's, that's right. Smartphones are a massive thing. What about, what else? Instant gratification, yeah. Always at your fingertips, right? Used to be you'd have to wait for the news to find out what was going on or wait for the newspaper. Now it's always at your fingertip. You always know what's going on and you kind of get FOMO. Like I might miss out, you know, so-and-so say something. Doesn't matter, you can't do anything about it, but you're just like, hey, I gotta know. That's a good one. Other things. Right. Yeah, she's either on the phone, had to disconnect the phone to put on the internet. Can you imagine being patient enough to wait for dial-up internet now? Like if that picture, that thing doesn't pop up right away, you're like, what is wrong with this internet? Yeah, that's exactly right. What about having to be present at the time that a TV show aired? Like you had to be there in front of the TV to watch it. Now it's just like you can watch whatever you want whenever you want to. So a lot has changed. And here's the big thing, guys. As parents in our home, when it comes to media and technology, we need to be present and engaged. 
present and engaged with media and technology because one thing is for certain, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. 1 Samuel 3, 10 to 14, uh, really 1 Samuel 3 in, in total is an account of Eli and his sons. And Eli, who's a priest and prophet there in Israel, seems to be very hands-off, right? He let his boys just kind of run amok evil acts they were doing as priests and he was rebuked because he did not rebuke his sons he knew there were issues going on and he just didn't want to get involved you know and i think sometimes technology can bring that out in us you know i don't know how it works i don't have time to figure out how it works so and so down the street lets their kid do it so it can't be that bad okay you can do it right i don't know how to do it probably not a big deal don't want to fall off over there. We also don't want to fall off on the other side, right? I've heard all the nightmares that can happen with smartphones, so my kid will never have a smartphone. Maybe when he's 18 and he's out of the house, he can have one, but in my house, he's not going to have a smartphone, okay? Well, the reality is that you, you want them to experience some of this stuff while they're in your house so that you can be the one that's shaping and molding that, okay? This is an interesting quote from Tin Challies. He says, we cannot run from digital technology. And this is a little dated. He says, mobile phones, computers, the internet, and television are likely to be with us in one form or another for some time. Definitely they are. We can't run away from it, nor should we necessarily want to run away from them. Certainly not all technology is harmful or dangerous. We are looking for that sweet spot where our use of technology is not just thoughtful and informed. We want to be thoughtful. We want to be informed. We got to understand it. So we want that, but it's informed, he says, the sweet spot when it's informed by the Bible and an understanding of God's purpose for technology. So as parents, we need to be engaged. We need to be active and attentive as parents, knowledgeable about what our kids are doing, what they're looking at, how they're accessing these things. Uh, you've probably figured it out by now, but your kids are amazingly smart when it comes to technology. I don't understand it. Right? I just don't get it. I like to think of myself as being relatively tech savvy. You know, I can look at something in like maybe 10 minutes, I'll have it figured out. My oldest son just knows how to do it innately. He doesn't have to learn. He just knows. I'm like, this is brand new. We've never had this. How do you know how to do this? It's crazy. But he, do, he does. It's a sign that I'm getting old. <laughs> I was the last class in high school that took typing on a typewriter. So, I don't know why I told you that, but that just means I'm getting old, right? <laughs> Technology, though, is a broad topic um, that I just kind of lumped together. So, first, I want to look at our understanding of media and technology, our understanding of really what the media is looking to accomplish, right? What are they, lo what are they looking to accomplish by giving us information? First, we need to understand that media feeds itself. People want more self-image, Kids in particular want to be esteemed. It becomes a craving, and social media platforms particularly are, are understand that, and they're going to give your child and give you what you want. So it's designed to give you more of what you want so that you keep coming back for more. It's more self, more likes, more of this, more of that. It's very self-centered. So media feeds self. Media also reflects the culture. 
They're asking, how can we begin to mold this child, this very easily influenced, very moldable, developing brain, how can we begin to mold that closer to what we want it to be? Okay, so you need to ask the same question. How can you begin to mold this very easily influenced developing brain? How can you use technology to begin to, 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 to mold them into what you want them to be? Because technology often has the right, the right problems. I'm sorry, media often has the right problems. They'll present the right problems and then they'll give the wrong solution. Almost never do they give the biblical solution. So something like a a teenage pregnancy or something, the media will say, well, there's a very easy solution to that. You just abort the baby. That's, not a, that's a, a real problem, same problem that you would have, but it's, it's the different solution to that problem that they are going to try to get you to, uh, your kids to understand. And so they reflect the culture. They're just shining a light on what the culture wants them to. Next, media intentionally presents a worldview. Okay, nearly all children's movies, all TV shows present a worldview. It, it's, it's dripping, dripping with secular worldview. Almost all of them, even the ones that you feel are kind of harmless, they're still dripping with worldview. It's funny, a couple years ago, we bought our kids all seven seasons of The Andy Griffith Show. And we've been, we watched through all of them. It took a while and we didn't binge watch them or anything like that. Um, you can't really binge watch Andy Griffith. Um, but it's interesting that um, there is still a remnant of a biblical worldview. That's not a Christian show, but it's made in the 60s. And there's a remnant of a biblical worldview with an authority structure and a respect for the family, a father who is in charge, who has the wise answer, a son that's foolish and trying to figure things out. And when he does it on his own, he gets into trouble. When he comes to his father, they solve the problem, right? Now, the, it's the exact opposite. It's the authority that is foolish or selfish. And I mean, just watch and see how many movies or how many shows present parents as having any wisdom. It's very rare. No, it's the children that are right and smart. It's the parents that are wrong and at fault. It's the women and the children that are saving the world while the men are greedy and they're bringing it down. They're messing everything up. You know, there's a quote that says, magazines are gospel tracks for someone's view of heaven. And we could add blogs, social media influencers, YouTube creators, whatever. They are gospel tracks for someone's view of heaven. So what is the media presenting to your kids as to what heaven is? Again, it's, it's more self. It's this thing that you need. You should seek after this. If you looked like this, you would be happy. And oftentimes, the heaven presented is nothing more than pleasures that will send your kids headlong towards the broad road of destruction. That is the media, what they're trying to do. And so we as parents need to present a very heavy counterbalance to that. It's not that all media is wrong or bad. We just need to be aware. And we need to recognize that media has a powerful influence. There is a reason that, I looked it up, companies are tripping over themselves to pay $7 million for a 30-second ad during a football game tonight. It's because if you have the right person saying the right thing at the right time, it shapes the desires and the wants and the needs of people, particularly young people. And so they watch this, it's like, I need that thing. 
I need that in order to be happy. Okay, so we need to understand that these are um, what the media is, is trying to influence our kids with. So an understanding of media and also an understanding of technology. We need to have an understanding of technology. It's important to know that technology reflects the creative nature of God. It reflects the creative nature of God. This is from Isaiah 54, verse 16. He's, God says, Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire and coals and brings out the weapon for its work. God said, I created the smith and the bellows and the proper amount of oxygen that you need to make iron and all these things. This is a good thing. Technology can be used for either good or evil. You know, you think of the ark, for example. The ark was the, the highest, the pinnacle of technological advancement in the world. And God used that for a very good purpose, to save humanity and to save the animals. So, and then think of how many millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people that now have access to the gospel because of the advancement of media and technology. It can be used for a great good. I saw, I forget the exact number, but millions and millions of people, particularly in Asia, that heard the gospel because of a new technology called cassette tapes that John MacArthur's ministry would send over there and people were getting these things and they started listening to them and it changed a culture, it changed people's lives, it changed the world. Now, now multiply that exponentially now in the digital age. There are so many opportunities that technology has given us to get the gospel into the hearts and minds of people that would never have heard it otherwise. So technology can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil. Right after the ark, we have the Tower of Babel. Not long after that, the pinnacle of technological advancement at the time, and it was a, a monument to the glory of man, a tower of the pride and glory of man. Millions and millions of people have heard the gospel because of technology, and millions and millions of people have been sucked into a black hole of horror because of the computer in their pocket. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. We as parents need to be present and alert as to what's going on so that we can shape the hearts and minds of our kids. And technology has dramatically increased access to media. We talked about the importance of what that media and its worldview are trying to do to our kids. Well, technology has greatly increased the access to that. Okay, so as, a ch as your child's parent, you have a vital role related to media and technology. So what is your role regarding media and technology? Well, let's turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 has some really helpful kind of insights on our role and God's role as regards to raising our kids in particular, but I think it applies to this. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So this psalm reminds us that God is ultimately who we rely on. 
God is ultimately who we rely on uh, as a protector of our homes, as a protector of our kids' hearts. But it also highlights two important roles for parents, that of building the house and protecting the house. So first, let's look at protection. There's a reason that your children have parents. So you need to protect them from physical danger. If you had a pool in your backyard, you would be responsible to make sure that they didn't get out into that water. And so you might put a fence around that pool. Be a very important thing that you can do. And you would do that until they learn to obey you not to get into water and until they what? Learned how to swim. Right? And then when they have, have matured, they listen to you, they obey you, they have a track record of doing that. They know how to swim. They know what to do if they fall into the pool you can remove that fence, right? Because we want to protect them from danger while they're young. And this also, we need to protect them from physical danger and the dangers of technology. And this is not just a need for your kids and my kids. This is a need for me. We all need to protect ourselves from, um, from this because sexually explicit content is rampant online and on these um, devices, so God is the ultimate guardians, but we are the under guardians charged by God to do this. And so we need to protect our kids. And secondly, preparation or training. Who do you want your kids to learn how to handle media and technology from? They're gonna learn it from somewhere. Who do you want to do that? Well, let me posit the fact that that needs to be us. They need to learn that from us, Okay. You know, we talked about a swimming pool in the backyard. You know, you, you train them to do that. You train them what to do if they accidentally fall into the pool. The right message is not pools are bad. The right message is not water is bad. We don't go near water. Water's bad. No, it can, it's great. It's not that technology is bad. We never want our kids to use technology and we're gonna go and live in, the, in Idaho in the backwoods or whatever, right? No, we are preparing them to face life's challenges with success as regards to technology because it's not going anywhere. You know, right now, as your kids are young, assuming that you have young kids, you can turn the TV off. You know, you can unplug the Wi-Fi, but you won't always be present to do that. And so we need to prepare our kids to do that um, while they're in our homes, how to handle these things in a way that would honor God. So what are your goals regarding media and technology? What are your goals? Well, First is shaping what media and technology influences your children's lives, okay? You're the gatekeeper in your house. What are you gonna let in? What are you gonna let your kids listen to? What is allowed in your house? What TV shows? Where can they be when they're looking at the internet? Which way is that screen facing? What are you gonna give your three-year-old to entertain them while you vacuum the house? What apps are you going to allow your teenager to use while they're in your house? Is you can't live in isolation your entire life and therefore we, all, we need to be shaping what media influences their lives and how media influences their life. You know, teaching your kids how to interpret media. You know, if you see a commercial tonight during the Super Bowl, you know, and, and it just looks like this big fun party while all these guys are drinking beer or whatever, ask your kids, what is this commercial trying to get you to do? Help them to begin to think critically about that. What are they trying to get you to do? Well, you'll notice how much fun it looks like to drink alcohol, but what are they not telling you when they're selling this? What are they not telling you about? They're not, they're not telling you about the next morning when they're all sick. 
They're not telling you that they're in jail because of the DUI that they got. All of these ramifications. Media is, is telling them all of the glory and you need to be a counterbalance to that to help them understand, help them think through those things. What are they not telling you? Also, teaching your kids how technology affects them and their interactions with real people, right? Texting, social media lead a lot of times to a lack of personal contact and interaction with people, right? Shorter attention spans, not being friendly and kind to real people, not being able to look people in the eye and talk to them with a firm handshake, all of those things, if you are not teaching your kids how technology affects them, and this is not perfect. I'm not saying, hey, all you do is tell them and everything's gonna be fine. No, but it's our responsibility to be doing these things, to teach and train our kids. Teach them of the, the addiction, or, or better word would be enslavement of these things. You know, those social media likes on the face page and all that stuff, those are equal, supposedly, to a dopamine hit from heroin. And you can be enslaved by that to where you must have that next like and that next deal, and especially a young brain, okay? And then what happens if you don't get it? And the picture that you, you put up there doesn't get the like. Now you've, you're being sucked into the alt- opposite of that. Question? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Chew on the meat, spit out the bones. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. Yeah, we need to engage with our kids. While I mean, it's okay to pause the TV and say, "Hey, what is this teaching us?" It's not that we're. I mean, maybe we're going to keep watching it, but you need to understand what this is saying. This is a good opportunity for us to have a teaching moment. Okay, and also we need to look at your practice regarding media and technology in your home. So you need to be knowledgeable about what your kids, um, of your kids' media and technology use. Ignorance, again, is not bliss. You know, it used to be you just don't have a TV in your room and no PC in your room. Yes? That's a good question. Um, I think that once your kids are 18 and they're an adult, Lord willing, you have taught and trained them to do that. Possibly you have a mature 18-year-old that's like, hey, I'm not ready for that and I would prefer you to keep some records and some time and to keep those filters on. But ultimately, you know, when your kids are 18 and they're on their own and they have their own house, then, you know, you'll have to prayerfully consider that. But by and large, you know, they need to be ready to handle those things on their own. And if they're not, they, if they are willing to still come under your authority and allow you to do that, that's great. Uh, but if they're not, then you at that point need to give it up to prayer and trust the Lord uh, because especially if they're not in your home. If they're in your home, your home, your rules. Like you're living under my roof. This is what we're doing. I don't care if you're 18, 19, 20, whatever. You know, you're gonna be home at this time you're gonna have these restrictions on your phone, you're not allowed to visit these websites, and if you don't like that, um, I will help you find somewhere else to live, lovingly, you know? Yes? Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Transferring again from authority to influence and allowing some other young men in their life to, or young women uh, to, to be that accountability for them. Yes? Yeah. Yep, definitely. Yeah, very good question. Um, you know, you got to be knowledgeable. Even things like video games, uh, you know, it might be a very, very innocent video game, but that game could connect to the internet and give them opportunity to chat and even talk to people on their headset and all that stuff from people all over the world. Okay, you have to be knowledgeable of those things. It's not just like it used to be where you put the Mario game in and, and it's just them in the game. No, there's modes on those video games that they have access to people all over the world. Okay, be careful with portable devices. Old phones can still get on Wi-Fi even if they're not a connected to a plan. Um, don't the bottom line kind of general rules here. Don't let them do it. If a couple of things, if you don't know what it can do, if you don't know what kids can do with it, or if you can't monitor the use of it with internet filters, private browsing on web browsers, and so on and so forth. And we'll get into a couple of those devices here in just a bit. Got to hurry though. Okay, and so we need to be involved with your kids' media and technology use. So family movie nights. Okay, it's not that hey. We're never gonna watch that popular movie because I just don't like it or you know, it's got this other worldview. That's not always the right answer. You know, prayerfully think through that. It might be better to watch that popular movie with your kids in your home so that you can offer that counterbalance and help them think through those things. You know, um, if it's very helpful you know, to be able to sit your younger kids in front of a show that you think is very innocent while you're doing vacuuming and some other things around the house, but sometimes you need to sit down and watch that show with them so you know what it's actually teaching and training your kids. But you probably don't want an environment where there is no exposure to technology. Um, your kid might say that they want an app as they get older. Well, you need to do research on what that app does, who they're connecting to. You know, if it's something like Instagram or, or those types of things, um, you could begin by saying, as your kid matures and you think that they're ready for something like that, you can have your account and your account is gonna be on my phone and there is no expectation of privacy. Everything you post, I'm gonna see. Everything you look at, I'm gonna be looking at. There's no expectation of privacy. Do you still want this app? And then you can help them and if they are looking at stuff or they're seeing things, or they're talking to people, that's a golden opportunity for you to sit down and say, hey, this is what the Bible says about this. This is what the world is saying about this. We need to talk through these things while they're in your home. You don't want the first time that they have access to this stuff to be when they're outside of your house. You want to be able to teach and train them while they're in your house. And those are just some things to think through. Um, so, and then you wanna be involved. You need to understand that you are the authority. Your kids don't have a right to media and technology use, even if they purchased it. You know, if they're under your roof, these are your rules. Your home, your rules. You know, if your kid bought a car 
they still need to be home at a certain time. They still need to use the car in a way that you would subscribe them to do that. If your child buys an Xbox, it's not like you would just let them, well, he bought it so he can just play it whenever he wants and he can contact whoever he wants on it. No, you would do that under your homes and you would give them certain rules. That applies to all media and technology. Yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, we haven't allowed like those kind of real graphic games in our house. The, usually there are games that aren't quite as cool but are still kind of fun that have a little more milder version of that. Um, I don't know. This There's something on the Switch called, uh, I think it's Splatoon, where it's like, a shooting game with paintball and it's a fun game and so we've encouraged those types of things um and so it's personal preference you know pray for, through those things there's not a thus saith the lord this is wrong but you're going to also have to um be present and attentive to your child's heart as they're doing that i mean is this something they're super attached to or are they starting to morph into some sort of violent person those types of things yes Yeah. Which is still something that the military and law enforcement do to decent. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is new and we don't know what it's doing. That's a good point though. These are all things that you need to take into account as you you know, as you become knowledgeable, more involved, and you're the authority in your home. So um, I hesitate to give any kind of black and white thus saith the Lord, if it's not in scripture, you're just gonna have to use your own um, judgment and things like that to make, make your uh, decisions in your home, okay? So being the authority means you, means you are willing to say no. Believe me, I understand, it is more fun to say yes. I want to say yes to my kids. I want them to enjoy life and have fun things, but you're the parent. You're in charge. You need to be willing to say no to things. You can use technology to limit their exposure. How do you do that? Well, you, can, you can't just take the TV out of their room like you used to. It's a little bit different world, and so there are restrictions on devices. So Apple has something called Apple Screen Time, which works relatively well um, to limit screen time, limit downtime, where it will shut their phone off at a certain time, um, and so they still have the physical thing. They can still use things like maps. If they're driving, they can still call you, but you can shut down everything else and so that they don't have access to some of those other things. Either that's a timing thing, that might be a disciplinary thing. Uh, those are different ways that you can do that. There's also um, uh, software, things like Bark, that you can put on your phone that will measure how long they're spending on all of these different apps. They'll shut down certain apps after a certain amount of time. Maybe you want to give them X amount of time for texting, and when that's done, it shuts off the texting or you could set it to where it shuts down the phone when they're on it for a certain amount of time. There's also devices like Circle and Circle Go, those types of things, which will block Wi-Fi access to your home so you know where, when and which devices are connected to uh, the internet. So you know you have a phone, your teenager has a phone, and your wife has a phone, and now there's this other thing 
you'll get an alert. There's other, this other thing connected to the Wi-Fi. What is this? And it allows you to, to research that. Um, you can use passwords to protect um, as well. Obviously, but passwords are helpful. You know, as, you, as your kid, you're giving kids access to media, put a password on the iPad or on their phone or whatever. So every time they want to use it, they come to you. Say, hey, is it okay if I check my email? Is it okay if I visit this particular website? You know, when they're doing it, you know, that they're doing it and they have to come to you. You put the password in, you let them sit and do it. And as they develop more um, trustworthiness, they don't go beyond what you've asked. They show themselves to be faithful in that. Then you can... Um, open that up to, to more opportunity. And lastly, we want to be reasonable. Again, as your children mature, you want them to begin making these decisions on their own. You know, they're going to use technology and you want, you want to be the one that's helping shape how they think and how they use it. Okay? And now we're in the lightning round. Okay? Adolescence. Okay? We don't have much time. Um, adolescence. A couple of things here. You know, as your kids grow up, teenage years, adolescent years. First, I want to talk about the myth of adolescence. The myth of adolescence is that it's an awful time and it's a guaranteed struggle. Not true. It, it's, the myth is that it's an awkward time between childhood and adult. You just need to survive it. Try to get through it unscathed. You know, if your kids aren't pregnant and addicted to drugs, you take a big relief and you've navigated the teenage years. That's not true. That is a myth, Okay. That is not true. De, uh, Paul David Tripp, the author of Age of Opportunity, says this. He says, parents are afraid of their teenagers. Even as they're enjoying the early years of, child's li- of a child's life, they're looking over their shoulders with dread, expecting the worst, knowing that, they're, that in a few short years, this precious little one will turn into a monster overnight. And he's painting a funny picture, but a lot of parents, that's how they view these teenage years. Not so. And the name of that book is The Age of Opportunity. He goes on to say that these are the golden age of opportunity. This is what you've been building up for. This is the opportunity that you have, that foundation that you laid where you can begin to really shepherd their heart. Um, There are particular unique challenges that you're going to have to walk through with your teens, but these are unparalleled opportunities. So the myth that it's guaranteed to be an awful time is just simply not true. Okay, also the certainty, so-called certainty of teen rebellion. That, you know, the idea is that every teen rebels. And that's just simply not true. Rebellion against your authority is not a certainty. You know, it is true that every teen will probably begin to to do some self-exploration, thinking through things in a new way as they are beginning to, to, you know, put one foot out the door. And that's what you've trained them to do. You want them to do it. That does not guarantee rebellion, though. But this can become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If your kids are young and you say, oh, I'm just so happy that you're young. You know, I heard so-and-so, their teen is, rebellion, is rebelling, and it's just, it's just terrible, and, you know, I just don't look forward that to, for you. You know, those types of things just aren't helpful. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, okay, well, I guess when you're a teenager, you just get to do your own thing and you rebel. No, we don't, we don't need to do that. If you... Let your kids know, hey, this is gonna be awful. Guess what? It's probably gonna be awful, okay? But if you go into it expecting fault, you're gonna find it. But the truth is that love hopes for the best. We trust the Lord. You've been laying this foundation. You've been praying for your child. Maybe they will rebel. Maybe they won't. But either way, you can trust the Lord and you might as well hope for the best. You know, 
you can begin to, to reward demonstrations of responsibility with more responsibility. And this is a great blessing. You know, the first time that we left our oldest at home with the kids, it was like a milestone that I'll never forget. We went to a coffee shop. I was like, I can't believe that we are able to do this. It was, it was like, you know, the last diaper we changed, you know, the last time we had our kids in uh, car seats, the first time they could stay at home, and then the first time that they got their license. Those are like big milestones where it just kind of eases your, you know, now we can go out and we can do things. Now we can send them to the store. You know, those is they're gaining responsibility, and this is all selfish about me, right? This is what I can get out of this deal. No, but, but you know, if you talk about how great it's gonna be to have this new responsibility, they're gonna be looking forward to it, and they're gonna be working towards that, and then when it actually comes into fruition, they'll begin to get more and more responsibility as they prove themselves to be fruitful. The result is more and more privilege. And so there is not a certainty of teen rebellion. But let's look at a few, th- few of the challenges of the teen years, okay, related to sex, alcohol, social interaction, you know, those types of conversations that you need to have related to drugs and alcohol. Um, there's a couple of books. Um, one is by the um, Shepherd Press, which is the same um, producers of the Shepherding a Child's Heart, and those books called, called Time for the Talk. It's a helpful book. Everyday Talk About Sex and Marriage by John Younts. You know, he talks about that even when they are young. Guys, you don't wanna wait to have this talk with your kids when they're going on their first date, if you're doing that. You don't wanna wait to have this talk, you know, about um, alcohol when they're invited to hang out at a friend's house. No, you can talk about, you know, the the ravages of drunkenness um, while they're young. So they understand that this is folly and foolishness, even from a young age. And, you know, keep in mind as you're doing this, to be patient and gentle. When you're having these discussions and these talks, don't make it awkward. It doesn't have to be a sit-down weird thing at all. Um, If it's awkward for you, it's gonna be awkward for them. But as we think through the challenges of the teenage years, one thing to think through is remember that the goal is not survival, but the goal is preparation. Okay? You need to be proactive and not passive in your preparation. You need to balance protecting your kids with influencing them. The temptation is to isolate and limit. And you should do that to a certain degree, like fencing the pool until they show themselves that they are ready. But once they are ready, you need to be willing to give them more opportunity to do things. You know, Begin to prepare your children for these issues earlier than you think you need to. And we talked about that. You know, the folly of drunkenness, the first time you have that conversation with your kids should not be when they're on their way to a party at a friend's house. Um, You want the person to explain, that begins to explain and shapes their thinking about sex to be you. That it's good, that it's a gift from God, that it's a wonderful thing in the right context, which is under the umbrella of marriage done outside the marriage, it can be very destructive. They're gonna learn that either from school or their friends or media or whatever. You want to be the one to explain that to them so that everything they hear from anybody else is viewed through the lens of what you have already shaped. They're looking at all of that stuff through the lens that you have had the opportunity to show them, which is the biblical um, reality of these things. 
And then you want to be sure to paint a full biblical picture of these issues, teaching the positive blessing that God has giving, given. It's not sex is bad. That you're not, we're not going to do it. No, sex is an incredible thing. It is a gift from God and it's intended for um, marriage and marriage alone. And then if your kid begins to struggle with these things, with these issues, you know, in this reality or really any other, be careful not to overreact. Um, if something happens at a friend's house, you know, and you get, you get wind of it or your child talks about it, don't freak out about it, which will likely, you know, lose your opportunity at that point to influence them. Okay, it doesn't mean that there are not consequences, but you want to take a big perspective. This is an opportunity for gospel ministry, the same way it was when you would discipline when they were young. This is you having an opportunity to discipline when, when them when they're old, and it's a gospel opportunity. You don't want to drive a deeper wedge in the relationship by freaking out about what happened. But you also want to make sure that they understand the gravity of what, what they're doing. So you want to be careful not to overreact. Paul Tripp says in The Age of Opportunity, he says, if you respond to some incident out of anxiety, irritation, and fear, and that's the temptation, anxiety, irritation, and fear, I can't believe this happened. What if somebody finds out, you know, so-and-so's gonna, they were at so-and-so's house and blah, 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 and your mind starts going crazy. If you do that, you will try to control your child all the more. Instead of seeing this as an opportunity of preparation, you're trying to prepare them when they leave the house, you will take on a survival mentality. You will see life as a minefield and you will hope for little more than getting your teenager across the line with their limbs intact. You will try to control and manipulate him into obedience. You will initiate unproductive power struggles. But if instead you move toward your teenager with confident faith in the Redeemer whose word is true and whose sovereign presence empowers your weak and feeble efforts, God will use you to communicate love, understanding, grace, hope, and life as you ask calm, life-probing questions. So you want to be careful to keep an open communication. Don't make these conversations awkward. These are You are the leader in your home. If it's awkward for you, it's going to be awkward for them. If this is just a father-son talk like you would talk about everything else, that's how they're going to respond. You want to be careful to focus on the heart and the gospel. This has been kind of the theme of our whole time here. We are not after behavior modification. We are after heart change through gospel ministry. And be careful not to totally insulate them from consequences. We talked about that a little bit. It's not that there are no consequences. There are. But we want to be careful and measured with how they do that. And one thing that didn't make the PowerPoint, but I put in here at the end, because when we don't have much time, you always add stuff, right? Is a quick thing about what if your teen rebels, right? If, you're, if your child um, rebels, it can, bring, it can bring sadness and disappointment, but it's also a wonderful opportunity for you to trust in the Lord. Again, he's sovereign. He is in control. You are stewards of what he has given you. Be faithful parents and trust in the Lord. If you have a child that begins to rebel, there is always hope. So remember, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done something wrong. Examine your heart. Be quick to ask them to forgive you if there is some sort of hypocrisy in your life. But remember that it doesn't always mean that you've done something wrong. Remember that God is the perfect parent and you rebel against him every day through your sin. 
God walked with, with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, and what did they do? They rebelled against him. He was the perfect parent. So you want to make sure that your child knows what is and is not appropriate in your home, but you don't want to look for faults, okay? Look for and encourage any growth of obedience or honor. Sometimes you're going to have to, you know, dig through things to find something to encourage them about, and you can do that, okay? It's very important that you do that. So how do you respond to a, a rebellious teenager? There is a helpful book, booklet, very short booklet in the bookstore. It's called Help, My Teen is Rebellious. And in here he has a few kind of ways to compartmentalize what kind of rebel you're dealing with with your teen. It's a simple fool, which is immaturity. All kids are immature. Some kids mature differently and you have high expectations for your kids and they're just not there yet. The settled fool is the one that decides, knows right and wrong, and they decide that they want the wrong. Okay, then you have the shameful fool, which is very in your face, a very vocal rebel. He helpfully kind of walks through the different ways that you could handle those things. But just a few quick things, how you respond. First is daily preparation in your heart. Wake up every day praying the Lord. Get a list of thankful things that you're thankful for. If you have a rebellious teen, it can be overwhelming. You know, you've, you've put your heart, your effort, your time, your effort, your energy, lay the foundation, and they're rejecting this thing that's so dear and important to you, and you see that, the, that they're gonna wreck their life potentially, it can be overwhelming. So prepare daily when you wake up for prayer, how you're gonna respond to your child. Another thing, don't escalate the situation, okay? If it starts to escalate, you know, son or daughter, I love you too much to talk about this right now. Let's back away and there'll be another opportunity that God will give us to to talk about this, but we're not gonna talk about it right now, okay? Um, Allow for the natural consequences of sin. You know, if they understand what was wrong and they are taking ownership of the fact that they were speeding, then let the ticket and the increased insurance premium be the, the consequence that they get. Another thing, don't challenge them or engage in power struggles you know, more than likely your child will be able to outweigh you, outweight you, maybe outweigh you too, but outweight you, okay? They have all day. They don't have to go to work, okay? So if you engage in this power struggle, until you do this, you're, you're not leaving the house or until you do this, you know, you're not gonna do this other thing, right? Like, okay, you wanna play that game? I can play it all day. <coughs> they can't. They don't have to go to work, Right? <coughs> just you must obey now and then walk away. <coughs> and most importantly, tra- pray and trust the Lord, okay? <coughs> View these things as a tailor-made trial. Trust the Redeemer. God is a saving God and there is always hope. You know, take a big picture perspective. This moment is a moment in time. We need to deal with it. But big picture, God is sovereign and Lord willing, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, this will be a distant memory. Or maybe not. And the Lord is sovereign over that. Very, very briefly related to sports and other hobbies. C.J. Mahaney says this, often as parents, we think we have (coughs) fulfilled our duty by simply attending our children's game and cheering. Not so. We are called to so much more. Informed by the gospel, we are called to lead our children wisely. Before the game... This includes preparing them to keep biblical priorities in mind while they play. After the game, this includes celebrating their expressions of godly character more than we celebrate the skill or the final score. Every moment our children spend in sports is a teaching moment. 
He get, then gives these following kind of suggestions for parents uh, so we don't waste our children's sports and other hobbies. Okay, so first we wanna celebrate, first we wanna celebrate godliness, okay? Paul uses metaphors in 2 Timothy uh, to talk about building character, okay? So sports reveal your child's heart. They're gonna reveal their character, they're gonna reveal what's important to them. There are many vital opportunities that you have to shape um, your child's heart through sports, okay? And you wanna celebrate godliness rather than being the best athlete on the team you know, be the best encourager on the team. It's great if your kid's a good athlete, but if he's on the team and he's trying and he's encouraging, that's a great thing. Rather than making the winning shot, or gen- you want to genuinely congratulate them as they congratulate other people who did other people who did make the good shot. Again, this is an opportunity, and when they're squeezed a little bit in life, for you to see what comes out of their heart and every godly characteristic that they show. You want to celebrate that more than the game itself. Okay, um, you want to prize your family. You know, be very careful about what you commit yourself to, what you commit your family to. Particularly if you have multiple kids, um, you want to prize dinners together. You want to treasure family nights. You know, and while also giving your kids opportunities for some of these faith strengthening activities, whether it's a sport hobby like a piano things like like that so you want to find a good balance and don't overcommit yourself or you'll just become a chauffeur you have multiple kids and they're doing multiple things you're just all you are is a chauffeur you're never having that family interaction you're just driving from one thing to the next your weekends are taken up and so you want to prize your family so think through those things look at the schedule can we do this or is this gonna is it does it match with the other things that we're doing or not how many days is this going to take away from our family it doesn't mean, hey, we're never doing this stuff because these are good things too. So you wanna take advantage of, of, or you really wanna think through before you take advantage of some of these things. One, you wanna, and then the next thing, love your local church. Prioritize church on Sunday mo- mornings. Maybe you shy away from the sport that plays on Sunday morning, okay? You want to have a consistent Sunday morning where you're going to church as a family. Um, if every night has a game or a practice, and you've lost opportunities to serve and fellowship in your church, then you're not prioritizing the church, you're prioritizing that thing, or you're prioritizing the sport, okay? And last, view these as training for life. You know, your child, I hate to break it to you, but he's not gonna make a living playing basketball. It's not gonna happen, okay? So make it fun, but don't overdo it, okay? Don't overdo it with the enthusiasm. Love your child, love their sport, love that they're doing this thing, cheer for them. Um, but le- look at these as a priority, as an opportunity for training for life, okay? Well, that's it. I have really enjoyed these weeks with you guys. I will continue to pray for you um, as you um, navigate uh, this thing called parenting that we all are called to do. Um, you guys are a blessing. I thank you so much for being a part of this class and why don't I pray for us and we'll be done. Lord, I just lift up um, each and every one of these parents and their kids and their families. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Lord, that you would give um, these parents courage of their convictions, Lord, that they would seek to train and admonish their kids. They would discipline them well. They would interact with them. They would prioritize biblical truths in their homes. Lord, they would open up the word of God and teach their children, both formally and informally. 
Lord, I pray that as we, we uh, navigate the different circumstances of life, Lord, that we do that through a lens of Scripture and a desire to glorify you, or that we as parents would be patient with our children and with one another. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to do this in a way that does not bring us glory, but brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.